Well, uh, if you uh, have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we're going to spend some time there this morning as we look at this wonderful gospel story. The um, pages are not turning well here. Here we go. I had it already marked. Um, I think it's good from time to time to remind ourselves of who Jesus is. That might sound strange. We're Christians. We talk about Christ, uh, Christ all the time. And it's true. And, and a lot of that time, we spend doctrinally speaking of who he is and what he's done and uh, why he did it, how he did it. Um, Paul fleshes out Christ's work as he writes to the various churches. And so we have such a, a rich treasure trove of doctrine in Romans and Ephesians. But sometimes we forget to go back to the, at least the three years that are recorded for us in the Gospels of Jesus's day-to-day life and what he did and what he said. And I think it's important to go back and kind of live in those stories uh, to remind ourselves. Often when I'm talking to a young person who either has grown up in the church and has kind of just drifted away or intentionally just said, I don't want to have anything to do with the church, um, I'll just encourage them like, hey, would you just take a moment and reacquaint yourself with who Jesus is? Like, go read through the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John and and just remind yourself who Jesus is. You may be surprised. <laughs> and I have heard stories of people who have done that. They, they have been pleasantly surprised because sometimes we can build a false narrative of who Jesus is, especially if we're rejecting the faith or just we didn't like the way my parents raised us or whatever it is. But then when we sit down and actually study who Jesus is and what he did, especially in his earthly ministry, um, I know as Christians, we can be very blessed. We can be pleasantly surprised. And the Lord has so often used that to save uh, many as well. So uh, we're, gonna, we're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 38. It's a little longer passage than I would normally read, but it's so important that we get the context. And, and it's a narrative, so it flows fairly quickly. Let's take a look here. It says that one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw him, he said, or saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
that she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray once again. Oh, Father God, we come to you this morning so grateful for your word that was inspired and written down for us through the Holy Spirit and by uh, this gifted physician named Luke. Lord, we pray that as we've just read and as we contemplate, that your spirit would open our eyes to see and our hearts to hear from you. We are so desperately in need of the work of Christ in our lives daily, not just on the one day that we are saved. And Lord, if there are any here who do not know Christ as their Savior, may today be the day that they enter into joyful forgiveness of their sins. We ask for your help in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's the story for you. I'm sure if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it several times. Um, and there are three areas I really want to look at. I'm going to kind of work through this narrative three different ways. First, I want to look at the, the main characters. And secondly, I want to look at what they did, their actions, and what it kind of reveals about who they are. And then finally, a little bit of application, just some understanding about what it all means and how we can apply it to our own lives. So obviously, you've been introduced. Simon the Pharisee is our first character. Then our second character is this woman who is identified as a great sinner. And then thirdly, we have Jesus. So Simon, let's think about Simon here for a little bit. We really don't know much about him outside of what's revealed in this passage. We do know that most Pharisees were very skeptical of Jesus. This is still somewhat early in his ministry. He's spending a lot of his time uh, outside of Nazareth in the area of Galilee. This takes place in Capernaum. And he's going around all these places and he's teaching. And he has people who follow him. And a lot of them are Pharisees. Now, they're kind of like standing on the outside, and they're listening. They're asking very probing, hard questions. They're trying to trip them up. They heard Jesus preach with authority, and I think that attracted them. Pharisees were, liked power. And so here's Jesus. They have no idea who he is, but this man speaks with power. He speaks with authority. They, they saw his miraculous works, and surely that caught their attention, right? I mean, if you see someone who was a leper who's no longer a leopard, and if you see someone who you've known forever has been blind, and then they're no longer blind, and you say, hey, what happened? They're like, I don't know, Jesus. I met him, and he changed me. You'd be like, okay, there's something very different about this Jesus. You would want to kind of figure out who he is, but they constantly were challenging him because Jesus' teachings seemed so different to what they were used to, to what they understood as God's word. Back in chapter 5, there's a great example uh, in Luke chapter 5 
where Jesus forgives and heals the paralytic man. And the scribes and Pharisees, this, this kind of shows the heart overall of where they're at. They say, who is this blasphemer? Who is this one who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? <laughs> I know how right they were. They, they didn't even see it. But what, what human being ever walked around and said, your sins are forgiven? There's nobody in scripture that's recorded in that doing that. And so there's Jesus. He demonstrates his power with a sign, with a wonder. That's how the Messiah's ministry is marked, signs and wonders. It wasn't just a circus show. It was a show there's power. But then to be able to speak, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's where the Pharisees are like, whoa, something's up with this guy. And unfortunately, because their, their hearts were hardened, they just reject Jesus. They don't realize the, 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 who he really is. So strangely, that's a little background of a Pharisee for you. Strangely, here's Simon inviting Jesus into his home. And in some ways, I think this is a very bold move. If you're one of the, the main religious leaders in your society and you're very concerned about this troublemaker, uh, you probably wouldn't invite him into your home especially if you think he's a heretic or a false teacher. Even worse, at times, they'll say he was of the devil. We do know there was one other Pharisee that did meet with Jesus, and he asked him some questions. You recall this in John chapter 3, right, when Nicodemus meets with Jesus. But how does, how does Nicodemus do it? Exactly, very good. By, by, by the darkness of night, kind of slips in. And, and he asks him some probing questions. And you see Nicodemus is just like confounded. Like, you know, how can one be born again? I mean, he's thinking so literally. Um, but here's Simon. Simon had some sort of boldness. Come to dinner. And, and what I mean by boldness, too, is it wasn't like, you know, when we have somebody over to our house for dinner, most people don't know, right? Outside of, you know, if you'd live near there, and like, hey, I saw the Lambert's ha- uh, car out front of your house. You know, that's, that's all about you would know somebody was over for dinner. Well, these dinners were very open and public just by nature of their houses. Windows were open, doors were open. A lot of times people would just come in and kind of sit on the edge, even if they weren't invited, especially if it was somebody well-known for discussion. So it's a very different sort of culture. And so here's Simon inviting Jesus over. What was his motive? Why, why, why did he do this? Could it be he's a bit like Nicodemus and he's intrigued? Like, nobody has power like this. You know, if it was satanic power, it would be harming people. Or if it maybe looked like somebody was blinded, it still would be for evil. Like there'd be something bad happening. There's always good around Jesus. There's always healings. There's always rejoicing. There's always people happy. Like something's going on with this guy. So maybe, maybe his motive was, I just want to know, like, maybe, he's a, maybe he is a prophet. Verse 29, or sorry, yeah, verse 39 here, as we just read, says, that after the woman comes in, that uh, uh, Simon thinks to himself, well, this man's surely not a prophet. So that's a negative statement, but it, it gives me some thought to consider that before the sinner comes in and touches Jesus, that he may have thought, well, what if this guy's a prophet? <laughs> Did he even think for a second, like, maybe he is the Messiah? Like, I want to hear from him. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us that insight. I just offer that as some, some speculation. We could also think 
giving him benefit of doubt that he's a Pharisee, that he was thinking, hmm, maybe I could get some dirt on this guy, you know. Uh, maybe I could dig up something on him and we could really, you know, bring up the, the charges against this man named Jesus. We don't know what his motive was, but we do know that he boldly invites Jesus over for dinner uh, and, and there's a conversation being had. They're, they're sitting there enjoying this dinner together. And so that brings us to our second character, which is the woman. And it's very interesting to me that Luke says there in verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, I love Luke's writing style here. This word literally is, look, behold, I don't want you to miss this. Here's this great dinner party. It's, it's kind of bold. It's strange that a Pharisee is actually having Jesus over. And behold, look in your mind. See this lady who comes in who is a known sinner. Her reputation preceded her. And there she is coming into the home. Now, if I think that Simon is somewhat bold for inviting Jesus over, I'll say this. This woman is bold. She has a reputation of being a sinner. And there she is willing to go into the place where, I mean, we've already seen Simon's heart here as we read through this, right? Simon's like, why is this man, why is Jesus letting this woman, a sinner, touch him? Pharisees had every rule and regulation to separate themselves from outside appearances of sin. They were masters at that. They had all the washing ceremonies. They had the garments all together. I mean, what does Jesus often talk about? How they, they pray so loudly in the public square. Look at me, I'm so holy. I'm not like that sinner over there. I mean, they were masters of the show. And so surely this woman knew if she came in this home, she's going to face some scorn. He's going to call her out. But that didn't matter to her because Jesus was there. Now, some people like to speculate on who this woman is. And if we look at this passage, in fact, this is the only time this story is told in all the gospels, just right here in Luke. This is what I love about Luke. Like, you know, he has some overlap of Matthew and Mark and the Holy Spirit allows that for for um, court reporting purposes. There are multiple witnesses to Christ and there's multiple accounts of these stories. But Luke was, you know, he was a physician, most believe, but I believe he was also one of the first journalists because <laughs> there he is documenting. He was out there talking to people and gathering these stories and the Holy Spirit was allowing him to build this together. So the Lord has allowed the story to, to come to us, but we don't know all the details. Now, there was a pope in the 6th century. They called him Gregory the Great. And he writes that it was Mary Magdalene. And for a long time, the church as an organization taught this. They even attached a, a feast to it. And these scriptures were read at that time. But there's nowhere that actually says this was Mary Magdalene. There's no evidence scripturally of that. In fact, a lot of the early church teachers either, either said, no, it wasn't her, or they just they just didn't even comment on who it was because we don't know the person's name. But we can assume 
that because this woman had such a great reputation, there's a very good chance she was a harlot, a, a prostitute, a, a lady of the night. That's a good possibility. A lot of commentators would believe that, especially if you think about it, that most women were at home caring for their families, going about their, their calling and their duties, and then this woman is known as a sinner. She, in some way or the other, whatever she did was very public and very known for being a sinner. She was no, well known for that. And literally this word means one devoted to sin. And of course we know it's the same, it's, it's like sinner, and then in Greek there's the word, or sorry, and then we have sin. In the Greek the word for sin literally is to miss the mark to err, to, to wander from the path of righteousness, to violate God's law. So whoever she was, she was known as someone who violated God's law openly, willingly, defiantly. And yet here she is in the house of a Pharisee coming to Jesus. Now, like I said, this is a different context than our homes. So our dinner parties tend to be around a dinner table with chairs that have legs and we're all sitting equal at the table. This was a first century Middle Eastern dinner party and the table tended to be in the middle, low to the ground, and there were pillows all around and the people tended to lean in if the table was here and they're leaning in on one arm and they're using the other arm to eat and to talk and they're kind of sitting in the round um, and so that's, like I said, sometimes the visitors would sit on the outside. And so that's how this lady s- slips in. Uh, it's, it's hard for us in our 21st century thinking. They're like, well, first of all, how did the lady get in there? No one said, what are you doing here? And then how in the world did she get to Jesus' feet without him going, what, what's under here? Is this the dog or, oh no, there's a lady down there. Uh, they're leaning out, his feet are out. And she comes in and, and there's Jesus. She slipped in unseen, unnoticed. And Luke says that she was weeping. And she fell at, her, at his feet. And she began to wipe his feet with the tears from her eyes, with her hair. Now, it's difficult in this moment. I'm just preaching. You're sitting there listening to sense the drama in this moment. This lady is highly emotive here. She's feeling deep love for Christ. And so it's difficult because we don't have it. It's not being acted out for us. We're not seeing it play here. But it is very important to see her heart. For she was once identified as a sinner. But something's going on. Something has changed in this woman's life. And that brings me to our third and final character, Jesus, and he's the reason. (laughs) Now, like I said, what we know of Jesus up to this point, if you're just following this narrative, you know, he was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. We know Nazareth rejected him in many ways. So he spent his time in the outer areas of Galilee, Capernaum. We know that just before this, he actually even condemns Capernaum for, for, for rejecting him. For, for not embracing him, too. There, there's a lot of rejection still going on, even though there are many who are still following him. And we know that no one has ever been like this person, Jesus. 
in this area. Casting out demons. Him calming the, the storm on the sea. Surely that story spread quickly. I guarantee you the disciples were like, you know, some of the next day, a week later, like, hey, were you guys out on that sea when that storm picked up? You know, it came out of nowhere. And they're like, oh boy, were we? <laughs> we thought we were going to die. And they're like, oh, well, well how'd you get out of that? Did you just a master maneuvering there? No, we, we couldn't do anything. <laughs> and Jesus just said, stop. And it stopped. And surely people were like, what? what, what do you, nobody can stop the storm. You mean he just said, I hope this stops soon and you wrote it out? No, no. He said, cease. And it stopped. It, it just was done. I, I can't explain it to you. It was just gone. What? And, and imagine too, just before this in Luke, there's the healing of the centurion's you know, uh, daughter and, and, and the kind of a shock at what has happened here or the servant. And there's the, the, the rising from the dead of another child. Who is this man? How, how does he do these things? Who has power over the storms? Who has power over the, 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 the calamities, the, the diseases that come over mankind? Who has power over death? You don't read about Moses or David raising people from the dead, and they were great men of faith. Surely, the, the big question was, at this time, who is Jesus? And probably the greatest thing was his desire to be with those who were not acceptable in society. I think about Luke chapter five. Once again, just a couple chapters earlier, there's Jesus sitting down with Matthew, the tax collector, soon to be Matthew, the disciple. And sinners like this lady and tax collectors were pretty much equal. <laughs> they were hated by Jews. They were hated, but particularly by the Pharisees. And there's Jesus. And what did the Pharisees say about Jesus? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't understand it. And Jesus' answer shines light onto his mission. It wasn't like he was an enigma, just not doing all these things and not saying anything. Jesus proclaimed the gospel. Jesus proclaimed the truth. And he says there in Matthew 5, I'm oh, sorry, Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous. I, sorry, I messed that up. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we know that that is what Jesus is therefore that is what the angels said he would come to do he would deliver his people from their sins and many followed him they were intrigued by his signs and wonders but when he spoke when he preached his words were piercing and we know many were transformed peter's life was transformed matthew's life was transformed and yes even though i don't think this is mary magdalene her life is transformed. She was possessed by multiple demons. And she was known as a, a sinful person. And 
And yet her life is transformed. What we see through Christ's ministry is the power of the gospel. People being born again, made anew. And when they heard him speak about sin and forgiveness, that's what they needed. When you think about the timeline well as well here, a lot of people, even John Calvin, they've harmonized the gospel, trying to figure out how all the stories flowed from beginning to end. And J.C. Ryle believes that just before this moment would have been the moment that Jesus was preaching in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And when you look at it, it kind of does look like that. That very well could have been the events before Jesus had this moment. So imagine, if you will, this, this woman who's known as a sinner is walking through. She's heard of Jesus. Surely people have heard of Jesus. She hears him preach these words. Come to me. There's an invitation. All who, are, who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Ryle says this, that wondrous invitation in all human probability was the means of the saving of her soul and gave her that sense of peace for which we see her so grateful. A full offer of free pardon is generally God's chosen instrument for bringing sinners to repentance. Whatever it was that Jesus had said, it seems very likely that she had heard him before and that her heart had changed. Something happened. And that brings me now to the actions of these folks. First, let's just look at the lady here. What, what happened? She heard that Jesus was going to be in town over at this Pharisee's house. And she's like, I need to go. I need to see him. And so she seeks him out. And she brings a very expensive flask with her. It says an alabaster flask, which can only be opened once. And it had expensive perfume in it. And be careful not to confuse this with the story later when Mary, Lazarus' sister, pours the nard. That's a completely different story. The, the expensive nard ointment. It's another story of someone blessing the feet of Jesus. But this here, nevertheless, is some expensive perfume. So she brings it with her. She's motivated to ignore the fact that it's at a Pharisee's house. And she goes to show her appreciation for Jesus, her love for Jesus, because something has happened inside of her. Really, it's a, it's a move of worship on her behalf. She wants to go and bless him. And so there she is. She comes in quietly. She begins to just, even before she could get the, anoint, the uh, ointment on, she just begins to weep. She loves Jesus. Jesus has changed her life. Probably it's a mixture of, of sorrow and joy all at the same time. Oh, what a sinner I was. I was so hardened. I did all that I wanted to do. I was horrible. I rejected God. I didn't care about God. Oh, but Jesus, his words, they penetrated my heart. Something I can't put into words what happened. Something changed in me. 
and the tears just begin to roll down. Joy and sorrow. Is that just not the gospel? Joy and sorrow. Oh, Jesus, thank you. And then her hair, she probably let her hair down and culturally would not have been appropriate to have it up. But there's her hair down. And she's drying it off like I'm crying too much. Oh, Lord, I got your feet all wet. I'm so sorry. Let me clean them off for you here. And, and then she takes the oil and pours it on the feet. And kids, it's okay to be grossed out right now. Feet are gross. Here she is touching them, kissing them. This kind of stinky, isn't it? Back in their culture, feet were stinky and gross. They still are today, right? It just feels awkward when we're talking about feet. But this shows her heart. She overlooks the scorn of a Pharisee. She overlooks the dirty, stinky feet, and she wants to bless Jesus. And we know, first century culture, this is a wonderful thing. Because what does Jesus say? And we'll get to this in a moment. But Jesus calls out Simon for his lack of action, for his lack of hospitality. But here she is, she's crying. She, she knows she's a woman of depravity. She knows her sin, but she knows that in Jesus Christ, her sins are forgiven. What a wonderful moment of worship. So what of the actions of Simon? Do we find him moved by her worship? Could have been. He could have been like, his heart could have melted. He could have been like, wow, this sinner is, is worshiping Jesus. But that's not what happens. Verse 39 says that he says in his heart, obviously this guy's not a, fair, a prophet because if he was, he wouldn't let this sinner touch him. That's what his heart is revealed. And Simon completely misses it. If there was any glimmer of hope that Jesus was a prophet, maybe a chance, a sliver that he was the Messiah, he's like, not this guy. No way that he would let a sinner touch him. Simon falls back to his legalistic ways. He judges this woman. And yet showing Christ's divinity, I love how time and time again the gospel writers will say, and Jesus, knowing their hearts, <laughs> he responds to them. Simon must have like, for a second, wait, what? Because <laughs> he, say, he, he says it to himself, and then Jesus answers him. He actually asks him a question. And Simon's like, how did he know that? Surely he must have been shocked by this. And so that's Christ's actions there. He responds with a question, actually more of a statement. He, he shares a parable with him. Someone was in debt, 500 denarii. Kids, just think $500. I'm sure most of you don't have $500. I don't have $500. Uh, <laughs> and then, so say you owed your mom and dad $500. And then there's another kid over here only owed his mom and dad $50. It's quite a difference, right? I'm sure five kids here could get together and try to wrangle up $10 each somehow, and they could put 50 together. But if we tried to get all the kids here to wrangle up $500, that's a lot harder. It's a lot more money. And Jesus says, Jesus calls out uh, the reality of this story here, or he uses this story to call out Simon for his inaction. 
and for his lack of understanding that this woman is worshiping Christ because she knows. Now, theologically, will we ever fully know the depth of our sin? We won't. Thankfully, for eternity, we don't even have to worry about that. But now, especially when we became a Christian, and the longer we grow in the Lord, we start to realize, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty depraved person. I can honestly say that in my 20s as a Christian, I knew I was a sinner, but I didn't know how bad of a sinner I was. And now walking with the Lord another 20 years past that, it's like I'm so thankful for how he saved me because the sin isn't necessarily all the gross sins, the, the, the blatant violations. It's the stuff that's in my heart, the stuff I think daily, the, the murderous thoughts, the, 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 the scandalous thoughts that go through my mind. And, well, Lord, what is that? Where does that come from? The Holy Spirit's working on me. This woman knows she's a sinner. She, she is very well knows how in debt she was. She's the one with 500 denarii. And the Pharisee is the one who, for this example, is 50 denarii in debt. <laughs> it's interesting, nevertheless, that Jesus does point out they both were in debt. And the Bible very clearly says we have a debt unto God that we cannot pay on our own. So, both had their debts canceled. Who was more grateful? Jesus also calls out Simon's inaction here. This woman was moved to worship because she knew how much in debt she was. But this man didn't really show that. And we see his lack of attention to Jesus. It would have been hospitable for the feet to have been washed. Even Christ shows the disciples this first century hospitality up there in the upper room the night before his crucifixion, washing all of their feet. Simon didn't greet Christ with a kiss. That's the way you greeted people who came in. Simon didn't anoint his head with oil, which would have been customary for the time. All of these things would have been standard. The woman did these and more. And she had done them with great gratitude and affection. So what is Christ's point in sharing all of this? Is he rubbing it in Simon's face like, you're a horrible host. I'll never come to dinner here again. It's not the point. Jesus never wastes a moment to shine the light of the gospel into darkness. And Jesus is showing, not telling. This is something I love to explain to my kids. And I've taught uh, filmmaking to various college classes. And I'm always reminding people, you need to show, don't tell. People learn better when they see it as opposed to being told that. And so that's what Jesus does with this parable. He's showing Simon his failings rather than just telling him. And so there's brokenness and tears, but there's forgiveness and joy on the woman's part here. And Ryle writes, the only way to make men holy is to teach and preach free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The secret of being holy ourselves is to know and feel that Christ has pardoned our sins. 
to know that we are justified and at peace with God is the only root that will bear fruit of holiness. And let me pause here for a second. Ryle's not saying that if we don't feel something that we don't have it. (laughs) Clearly, that would be a contradiction to Christ's words, his very last words in this chapter. In verse 50, your faith has saved you. It's not your feelings that saved you. It's not because you're crying that you're being saved. But Ryle is picking up on the very theme that Christ is teaching. He continues and says, when we know more of the depth of our depravity, when we know how much we've been forgiven, it does make us more grateful and at times even moves us to worship, to feel love for the one who has delivered us, to understand the depths that Christ went to to save us, to, to, li- to deliver us from our sins, all the more we are moved to worship, often like this woman. One more section here of Ryle. It's so rich and pithy. He says, forgiveness must go before sanctification. We shall do nothing until we are reconciled to God. This is the first step in religion. We must work from life and not for life. That's so important. Because there are those who will teach this section that it was the lady's actions that saved her. But Ryle's reminding us, and the Bible reminds us over and over, that it first begins with the heart being transformed. That's what he means by out of life and not for life. Our best works before we are justified are little better than splendid sins. We must live by faith in the Son of God, and then, and not until then, we shall walk in his ways. The heart which has experienced the pardoning love of Christ is the heart which loves Christ and strives to glorify him. I hope that clicks. I'm still having the Holy Spirit work on me in that way because I'm too easily convinced of my American bootstrap mentality that I can pull it up and I can get it together and then thank you, Jesus. And no, we, have to get, we can't get the horse before the cart. By faith. That's what Jesus said here. What saved her? It was her faith in who Jesus was. The object of her faith is what saved her, not her actions, not her emotivity. So brothers and sisters, what do we do with all this? Well, Simon is our bad example. If we're thinking about showing, not telling. And oh, how we need to be careful not to be pharisaical like Simon. There's a guy I've read a lot of his works. Jack Miller's his name. He often refers to himself as a recovering Pharisee. I think that's a pretty fair example for Christians. <laughs> We're all recovering Pharisees. Too often we think we have it all together. If you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, I guarantee you you've done what I've done. You've patted yourself on the back and you've not even realized it. When our devotions are going so well, when we see, oh, look at this person very clearly sitting over here. Oh, I hope they get it together. I'm very concerned about them. And we don't see our own sin. Too often we live as if I only have a few denarii of debt. 
brothers and sisters, we were the ones with 500 denarii in debt. And that's just a metaphor, you know, that's just an example. The debt was eternal. And so it really does come down to living by faith alone, in Christ alone. A repentant life of faith before Christ. Paul explains it like this, and this is, I'm not a believer in life verses, but this is the one that I often preach to myself. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And I now live in the flesh. How? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for me. Dane Ortland, thinking about this uh, very chapter in Luke, writes in his new book called Deeper, which is talking about real change for real sinners. But not once in it does he give you steps of how to do that. He writes this and says, thinking about our depravity and our sin, we do not merely begin the Christian life by faith. We progress by faith. We progress by faith. It is our new normal. We, pro- we, process, sorry, we process life. We navigate this mortal existence by a moment by moment turning to God in trust and hope at each juncture, each decision, each passing hour. We walk by faith and not by sight. This is we move through life with our eyes looking ever up. Our posture is one of expectant empowering from above. Both repentance and faith, however, must never be viewed in isolation from Jesus himself. They are connectors to Christ. They are not our contribution. They simply are the roads by which we get to real healing and Christ himself. And that's why I said this woman is our great example here. It's not her actions, but we see reflected in her a heart change. Jesus is the only one that can save me. I need Jesus. I need to be near him. Despite the scorn of the world and the Pharisees, I need Jesus. And in that She shows her faith that he's able to do it. And we see her repentance. And it's just so easy. I fail in this all the time to think, oh, it's my actions that have done this. She didn't just stare at her sin and live in despair. She came to Jesus and was blessed. So dear Christian, as we wrap up our time here this morning, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit is drawing you closer. We know the scripture says he does. If we are in Christ Jesus, as we heard even from Romans 8 this morning, there's no more condemnation and we can trust and believe that the power of the spirit is always at work in our lives, drawing us closer to Christ, revealing our sin, giving us joy that our sins can be forgiven. That's the challenge of living in the already and the not yet we have already had our sins forgiven for eternity we are his and yet here we are in this wretched flesh as 
Paul would describe it right there before Romans 8. In Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, woe is me. How can I have such a great Savior who bled and died for me? And then I did that sin. I thought those words. I doubted your goodness. Oh, Lord, I'm wretched. Oh, but you are good. And you're not condemning. You love me. You correct me. You discipline me. You guide me. You bless me when I don't deserve to be blessed. It's your kindness that leads me to repentance. This is the good news of this chapter. This is the gospel. So dear Christian, when you find yourself in despair over your sin, we are not called as the Buddhists to stare at it like they would stare at their navel. We are called to go to Jesus. The promise of Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heaven laden with your sin. It's the promise every single day to you, brothers and sisters. Don't be like the self-righteous Pharisee who says, all right, Lord, I'll clean it up and I'll do better next time. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have cognitive thoughts. We We do think in our mind, all right, Lord, what are ways that I can't sin like this again? I mean, we all have various... Hang-ups is what the world would call them. We all have our Achilles heel. And and the Holy Spirit makes us aware of these things. He convicts us. Don't hang around those people anymore. Don't go to those websites anymore. Don't, you know, drink that much if you're really struggling with addiction. In fact, Jesus would say, cut off your right hand, pluck out your right eye. Get away from it. But the point of this section, the point that I want you to see is that it begins with the heart because the Pharisees didn't have the heart. They had exterior actions. They weren't out blatantly sinning in the public square, getting drunk and hanging out with harlots. But, oh, Jesus revealed their hearts, did he not? Time and time again. If you thought, I hate my brother, you've murdered him in your mind. If you thought, oh, that woman's hot, I'd like to be with her, you've committed adultery in your mind. The heart is where we have to deal with this. And Jesus is the only one who can. And so my encouragement to you as we reflect on Simon and and this woman and Christ and all of their actions and all of this story is yes, we're still struggling with sin. But there's Jesus. Go to him. Find time with him. Spend time with him. Confess your sins. Rejoice over forgiveness that is yours for eternity. Worship him. And you too will find joy. You too will have peace. Jesus came to pay our debt, to redeem us, to save us. He is able. He is willing. Oh, that we would keep coming to him. Even as we are about to here in just this moment, in our communion, this is the precious moment of the body of Christ. For 2,000 years, Christians have followed this path, this, this, this commandment of Christ to remember him, to commune with him through the Spirit and to commune with brothers and sisters to remember what he has done, to 
remember the horror of our sin, to rejoice in the forgiveness that we have because of his broken body, because of his blood. And as Paul would remind the Corinthians, to remember he is coming again. There's the hope. He's coming again, brothers and sisters.